one, and we are recording. Trevin, how's it going, buddy? I am great. How are you, JP? Good. It's it's nice to finally officially meet you. We've done a lot of communicating over uh, text, social media, everything since 2005, if you remember. That's when we first met. And we met, didn't we met, we met through a Bowsite. antelope hunt. Bowsite.com. Yeah, and an antelope hunt in Wyoming. Yep. We we were we both you and your brother I think and I had access through Chuck. Yep. I think Chuck was the land manager or the or the ranch manager. Chuck Brinkerhoff. Yeah, and uh, I was filming for Best of the West at the time. Yep. And we were antelope hunting, and you guys were hunting that. We were I was hunting that not at the same time, but right, right. Yeah, it was yeah, funny was because. Cool. Uh, what happened on that hunt, I'd never antelope hunted before, and my brother and I knew a, fr- a, a kid from Las Vegas that my brother used to work. My brother lived in Las Vegas for a while, so he met this kid named Brandon Ruckman, and Brandon and his parents used to hunt Wyoming all the time, and they kept telling us, man, you guys got to come, come hunt Wyoming. They gun hunted it, and they said, but you'd be able to kill him with a bow. So they ended up telling us to put in for two units, and we ended up putting in for both of the units, and we drew the unit on Chuck's place. Right. Right, but we didn't know. We wanted to draw the other unit. So the Ruckmans had said, well, we don't know anybody over there, so we're not even going to go hunt. And it's mostly all private. So I called um, Game and Fish, Wyoming Game and Fish, and I just asked for a list of anybody that would allow any public or any private owners that would allow hunting. And they said, well, here's a list of four people. And the funny thing was I called through all four people, and the last one that answered was a guy named Bug. And I said, yes. hi, Bug. I said, uh, do you allow animal hunting? He goes, ah, you got to talk to my wife, Joy. She takes care of it. So she jumps on. Well, I, yeah, she jumps on, and she said, uh, well, we're all filled up this year. And I'm like, for bow hunting? She goes, oh, you want to bow hunt these things? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, oh, nobody bow hunts them. You can have the whole week. And I think it was either right after that or right before that, I went to bow site, and I typed in anybody hunt antelope and unit x you know whatever unit it was and i get a message from a guy t13 says hey i drew that same unit and it was you and i'm like t13 so we started talking and i think you were talking to them at the same time that we were it was really ironic you know you ended up killing a really good yeah really good goat on that that hunt You know, the funny thing was on that hunt, I think I sat four days, you know, that they had a couple of water holes. And the problem was, it seemed like every time you said, you know, it's it's hot and it's, this is not super conducive to spot and stock bow hunting. It's more, at least for what we were doing. And I was trying to sell video and stuff like that. Uh, It was more conducive to blind hunting. And so I'd set up a blind and then it was you could just see just far enough to see the other tank yeah and i'll be darn it was so frustrating because you'd be sitting there and the critters would go there and i think what i ended up doing um the fourth day now mind you i'm sitting in a blind i have no pants on hot because it's hot i think i think i had a little thermometer keychain deal that i brought and i put it in the top of the blind you know where all the heat rises and i think it got to 114 and um and i'm sitting there and what i did the the last day was uh early early in the morning or maybe it was still dark i went to the other blind and i pounded in a stake and i tied a white garbage bag to it like a you know a shopping 
uh, a grocery shopping bag to it, maybe a couple of them, just so that it would rustle in the wind because the wind always blows in Wyoming. And uh, I ended up, <clears throat> I think it was like 3.30 in the afternoon, and here comes these cows to water, and there's a buck behind them, an antelope buck coming in. And the cows end up clearing, and I end up, shoot, I shot that buck, and I think it was like it, he didn't want to commit to the water hole. And I think I ended up shooting him at like 52 yards. Nice. And he, you know, antelope or antelope and, and, southeastern whitetail are the jumpiest stinking critters right yeah. you know you hear about people trying to shoot alabama does and how they're like just keyed up yeah. well he he whirled and um and he whirled kind of into me so instead of shooting him behind here i caught him right here um at the shot and I just remember at the time I was filming uh, for Best of the West, but I was also filming, I was doing a bunch of stuff uh, out of the double bull blinds when Keith and Brooks and those guys still owned it before they sold it to Primos. Yeah. And so I was getting content for their DVDs. I don't know if you remember when you bought a double bull blind, you got a DVD, yeah. you know, yep. their latest DVD. And uh, I filmed that hunt. I mean, it was blood was squirting everywhere and he didn't go very far, you know, that whole thing. And I just remember after that hunt, I sent that that video, the the footage to Keith Beeman, and he emailed me back, or maybe he even called me. He goes, Trevor, he said, I can't use this. I said, What do you mean you can't use this? He goes, It's too bloody. I'm like, Dude, these are the guys that are the kings of lopping heads off turkeys, lopping heads off of turkeys, yeah. and they can't use my footage. Yeah, shooting geese so, on a golf course out of their blinds. Uh, <laughs> nah. So anyway, um, that was it, it, that was kind of fun. It was it was fun, but that was a hot hot day. I just remember I took about three Louis L'Amour books, and I would read a page and then look up. But what are you going to do? I had my lunch with me. You know, I had yeah. everything, water, plenty of water. And but you, you in a situation like that because the property wasn't huge, right? And so we could only hunt, you know, a little area. But it was big, big fields, and you'd look on the other side of the field, and you might watch a herd of antelope for four and a half hours. Yeah. And I mean, I prayed. I think I I did a lot of things trying to get them to come over to me. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, it's just a patience thing, and and you know, the buck I ended up killing finally just showed up like you know when the cows came in he came in and you know so anyway yeah we uh, i hunted that place that was 2005 that was my i mean i it was a, such an amazing hunt my brother showed up the day before we did i was colorado in colorado elk hunting killed my first bull on my own do it yourself on two days before i got to wyoming and then the very first day i shot my first wyoming buck antelope buck right there on the water hole and then we came back. That was 05. I think we came back in 2007. We skipped a year, and I drew a, a buck tag and a uh, doe tag. My brother had a buck tag, and we brought a friend of my brother's. He had a buck tag, and we were done on day three. And then I went back in <clears throat> 2012. Chuck was still there, and you know Chuck had gone through some really hard times. His wife had passed, and then his son committed suicide. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know, know that. that. I knew his wife had passed, but I didn't. Oh, my goodness. His yeah. son committed suicide? His son committed suicide. Oh, my and, goodness. Yeah, and he found him. And you know how Chuck is. He's a world-class individual. I mean, we've always stayed in touch with him. 
So he was really in the, in the dumps. Um, he was really, really down. And so Bugs and Joyce moved him off that ranch and brought him up to Elk Mountain to their ranch and moved him into a house in town so they could kind of keep an eye on him a little bit. And they brought a new guy in to uh, work the, the, that little ranch there at Rock River or wherever it was. And uh, this guy was a little different. He wasn't like Chuck. He wasn't as helpful as Chuck. And, you know, he kept saying, you see any badgers out there, you make sure you kill those badgers. Because uh, we've been watching, this guy kept saying, because I've been watching the badgers kill all my calves. He said the bad, that's what he said. Wow. I, I don't believe it. But so when you drive in on the property on the east side or whatever, on the right side of the property, I don't know the direction, there's that native hay. And then on right. the, the, the left side is all the alfalfa. And then this, right. you know, for the listeners, you envision this, this alfalfa, 3,000 acre alfalfa farm surrounded by sage. So these antelope would, in the, in the day, they might move off the alfalfa and sit up on the sage and overlook the alfalfa or they just lay in the alfalfa but then they're just always there and they'd always tell us there's hundreds of them out there you know they got to the point where the wyoming game and fish gave them fireworks guns they're shooting at the antelope to try to get them off the alfalfa i mean they get seven dollars for every antelope that's killed they're just they can't get them off so it's a great place a great place to hunt no i mean it's just totally private land wide open well there was no water that year and so it was a spot in stock and that was really difficult. And Chuck had told, so Chuck would kind of bounce back and forth to the ranch. And he said, you got to hunt the buck that's living in the native. He's got the biggest diggers, prongs of any antelope we've ever seen on this farm. And sure enough, we roll out there and boom, there he was. And I got him on my wall. He's sitting right there. <clears throat> I ended up killing him. Well, trying to pattern him, he would run, you know, those big drainage ditches that would run all the, 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 the borderline of the property. So we'd see him in the native and he would, uh, he would leave the native in the morning. He'd be there in the morning when we woke up at dark. You'd show up. He had 13 does with him, and he was in the native hay. He was the only buck. And then he would run the does off, and they would go up into the sage in the afternoon. So we set a blind. I had a doe tag, too. We set a blind over in the alfalfa on that fence corner, and then I was going to spot and stalk this. We called him Mo. We had a nickname for him, Mo, the big, the big digger one. And so first morning, I seen... Uh, where he crossed. So we just, we were there before the season started. So we were kind of scouting. So I kept seeing where he was crossing. They had these little scoots. And that, that was a, that, that was, was a September 1st start date, right? Yep. For that area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we got there a little bit early and was just watching them. And then, so I set up right at one of these crossings across this big eight foot, you know, drainage just that they flood it and right. flood the fields. And here comes one doe, two doe, three doe. And I'm like, I'm going to kill this thing on day one. This is going to be incredible. And Chuck told us that this buck never would go over into the, the, alfalfa he only lived in the native in the sage so here comes doe 13 i'm like any minute this buck's gonna come by they're going by at like 35 yards i'm like this is gonna be a slam dunk and i'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and here he pops out in the sage 150 yards away and i'm like what in the world happened he just took a different crossing so that day we went over and we sat in the blind so we waited and he went up in this in the the sage and there's no more deer on the native so we walked over and got in the blind. You know, there's a little cow decoy we used to get out into the blind, sit down, got in the blind, and sat there. And it was probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and my brother said, hey, he's looking back up above the farm, back where all the old vehicles were. And he's like, right. here comes Mo following his does, coming over to the alfalfa. And Chuck said he never comes. He came out to 50 yards right in front of my blind, and I shot a foot over his back. I'm like, I mean, I just drew back. Got down on my knees and there was we're in a, a kind of a corner of a fence and I draw back like this. I'm like, I was so stinking nervous for some reason. I I mean I get nervous when I you know whenever I'm gonna shoot an animal I get my adrenaline's going, and I shoot and I'm like 
And he just stands there, and then he kind of trots off. My brother looked at me, and he goes, what, what did you do? And I'm like, I shot like a foot and a half over his back. He's like, what in the world? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I just blew it. I, unbelievable, I blew it. Well, we hunted him again day two, same thing. I couldn't find where he crossed. Day three, couldn't find where he crossed. Day four, I couldn't catch up with him. He would just, he never came back under the alfalfa again. I ended up shooting a, a doe. I got the, oh, if you can see it, there's the, there's the doe right there. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a doe I shot. She had big, good little antlers on her. So I mounted her. I did mm-hmm. a little European mount on her. Well, finally we figured out I, I was, I was hunting every single crossing where Mo was crossing this drainage. And sometimes I sat one spot and his does would cross again. And he, it was almost like he knew I was there. So the one day I figured I found a spot way down on the end of the property. And I'm like, this has got to be where he's crossing. Cause he keeps coming out farther down from where I think he is. And I just kept, you know, Right. Playing it, playing it, playing it. And he ended up, what we found out he would do is if someone drove down the driveway and the, those antelope were in the native, they would take off running a hundred miles an hour to get out of the native. Really weird. And so I'm sitting there and here the, the, they're working their way toward me and they're about 700 yards away. And I'm like, they're kind of coming my angle. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I bet I picked the perfect scoot where he's going to cross this little, this drainage. And all of a sudden, the rancher driving down the driveway, he's leaving the property. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, this ain't good. And they, they start trotting a little bit. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, they're going to run right by me. And he's trotting a little bit more, trotting a little bit more. And next thing you know, I think antelope, when they take off running, they, they, they scare themselves. So they look at each other. They were looking at each other. And they were going, they must have been going 70 miles an hour coming right at me. And he crossed that scoot at 70 miles. And I mean, all the does would run. They'd stop. And then they would jump down through it and go. So I'm like, well, right. he's going he's gonna to run right to it and he's going to stop and I'm going to get one shot. So as he's getting about 100 yards away, I draw back and I'm like this, the scoot's 20 yards away and I'm like, waiting, waiting, waiting. That buck never stopped. He hit that scoot like a freight train and I'm like, whoa, he was gone. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. My heart's going 100 miles an hour and I turn around and look and this is funny. Here's what I did. You'll think this is funny, but I didn't want to move. So I had my phone because I was videoing them as they're out in the thing, and I'm looking at them through the screen of my phone. I didn't want to get up and turn around, and he's standing there broadside, looking back at the scoot, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I just slowly turned, ranged him, and my, my range finder's going like this. You know, it's bouncing. I'm like yeah, trying to yeah. hold it like my heart's going, and he was at a certain distance. He was at actually 67 yards, and uh, I, I said, okay, that's a long shot, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw back. And if I shoot long, my theory is I draw back if my pin locks on, I'll just squeeze it off. If I'm like this, I'm not going to take the shot. And I drew right. back on that, that buck. And all of a sudden my pin goes, thunk, squeeze it off and smoke that thing. It was the last day that we were hunting there and I killed him. That's awesome. Yeah. It was a That's really, awesome. really awesome story. Cause so at, at their place, I was able to, I killed uh, two bucks on water and then one in spot and stock. And then it went back two years ago with my oldest son. Um, oh, really? A, yeah. There's a guy named Cole there. And he's a, he's a really great guy. He's a rancher. He's he's working the ranch. Chuck got remarried and moved away, so he's doing really good. Uh, thank the good. good Lord. And I called Joyce, and she said, "Yeah, I'll get you." And I said, "I only want to bring my son. I don't want to hunt. My buddy's son and and my son want to come, and they're I think they're thirteen, they're fifteen now. So it's two years ago." And she says, we'll make a spot for you. Don't worry. I remember you. We like you guys. And so she put me in touch with Cole. And Cole's calling us as we're on the way. He's like, hey, if you guys can get here, like in the next half hour, there's a herd of antelope on the driveway with a pretty good buck on it. You can just come up and shoot it. <laughs> I mean, you know, because they're, they're all over. 
Um, so my, we went, my son ended up killing his first antelope buck and then my buddy's son killed his first antelope buck. And then my son had a, um, a doe tag too. He put in for an extra doe tag and I got a, I had had a 28 nozzler built and I wanted my son to shoot one. I wanted a long range shot. Yeah. He's a really good shot. He shoots all we shoot. We're shooting all the time. And he killed his doe at 550 yards. Oh, Boom. that's awesome. Dropped it, 13 years old. So that's great. And I'm not a big yardage guy. I don't want to say that and make somebody mad. But, I mean, he, he had a rock-solid rest and killed it dead. So That's awesome. Yeah, what a great – that's a great hunt for, for youth, you know. Phenomenal. Because of that ability to have the number of animals, opportunities, you know, stuff like that. So that's great. I, I – uh, I killed my one and only animal with a muzzleloader on that place. Yeah, that's right. A couple years after because, us. Right. right? Remember, remember when um, well, I was with the Best of the West and, you know, the whole idea was this um, bringing some archery in to give it a little different flavor, that type of stuff, right? Well, <laughs> um, they were like, well, why don't you at least shoot a muzzleloader? So I got a muzzleloader, and I'd never shot a muzzleloader before. And oh, that's not true. I did actually uh, get a muzzleloader sighted in for Guy Eastman when I was used to work for Eastman's Hunting Journal one time. But I mean, I didn't have a ton of experience. And uh, I went out there, and what we ended up doing is in the alfalfa, we jumped in the little ditches. You know, the, yeah. the they had the those little ditches, ditches throughout, throughout that alfalfa, alfalfa field. field. Yep. And there was a herd, and I wanted to get within a hundred yards, and and I had a scope, and I mean the whole nine yards. I mean it was it was a pretty cool deal, and I I remember belly crawling through the weeds in the ditch, and then popping up, and and then trying to get steady, and I remember I shot, and uh, I of course it's all smoke, right? And I'm like, well, did I hit him? And the guy that was running camera was behind me, and he didn't know because it's it all, all smoke, you know. And and I did. I I shot the antelope buck, but as I turned back to the camera, I'd scoped myself, oh, and I no. had this I had this trickle <laughs> of blood coming down my nose, and so War, but, that was a really that was a great ant. That was probably one of the best antelopes taken off that property. The one you shot with your muzzleloader, wasn't it? Or yeah, was it with your bow? That was so a that, pretty good one. I remember that was it was pretty good. good. Yeah, you know yeah. that place is such an incredible place it is you know for for youth to take antelope hunting in general in wyoming is the best place to take youth if you want to go out of state because there's so many antelope i mean you could hunt right. in a public place and find antelope that's for sure it's it's you know there's more antelope than people yeah. and um so it, it, a lot of it's private um and the the public does get hunted pretty hard but like you said it is a a uh it's an opportunity. There's lots of opportunities, so yeah. it is a good one. I think, uh, you know, it's the biggest antelope I killed, I killed in uh, in Wyoming, but d- uh, down uh, more north of Rollins is where I was at. And um, and, it, and that was, a, I actually posted a picture on Instagram the other day, uh, day before yesterday, I think, of that. I was just kind of going through old photos, and you know how you get nostalgic and and it's definitely it's number one it's a gorgeous photo there's the contrast of colors and the backdrop it's just gorgeous and that that goats uh uh, 86 and some change and um and i shot that goat and i mean i 10 ringed him but he was quartering away so i got one lung 
And that was one of those deals where you're like, oh, yes, that's great. And he runs and he runs and he runs. And luckily, as uh, this is a, a big place we were at where we could get up on a high spot and I could keep track of him. And it was a couple hours later before I snuck in and put another arrow in him. But uh, I'm just looking yeah, at it right now. I'm looking at it right now. That is yeah, amazing. They, the biggest, biggest cutters. I've killed a I killed an antelope in Colorado that was 79 and some change. And then that that that's my first 80 inch goat. 80 that's plus beautiful one look at that so, bow all decked out got color all over it yeah so that's the aspen assassin that was that old uh snow camo yeah. uh hoyt had a snow camo blend and then i would put those yellow a accents on it you know yeah. and so it kind of looked like an aspen tree yeah, in the beautiful. fall you know it's a great so yeah well tell everybody you know what we just jumped on and we started talking Tell everybody who you are, man, what you do. You're, you're big in the outdoor. You were big in the outdoor industry when I first met you. I mean, you were, you'd been filming, you know, a lot of filming. Obviously, uh, you're a hunting fool. You hunt all over the place. You got some great tags for this year. Going to be an yeah, exciting year for Trevin. But tell yeah. us how you grew up, where you grew up, how you got into hunting, wh what that looks like. Well, I grew up in uh, southern New Mexico and Las Cruces, New Mexico, and my, my dad didn't hunt, but my grandpa and my uncles all did and my cousins so that's how i got into the hunting industry was through uh, my uncles taking me and and i was um i was pretty energetic as a child let's just say that i was uh you know i was a handful and so um you know i have to hats off to my grandpa and and, and my uncles and my cousins and all for putting up with me and taking me out and and uh but it i fell in love with that lifestyle and and um i was a small pretty small kid um and what i mean small i mean you think of the smallest kid in your sixth grade class and i was probably smaller than he was um i i as a sixth grader i remember i weighed 62 pounds and i wanted to play football you know in the peewee football deal yeah no actually in sixth grade that's not true in seventh grade i weighed 62 pounds in sixth grade i weighed you know, right around 50, but I couldn't play football in sixth grade because I was too small. You had to weigh 65 pounds. So my seventh grade year, I went out the last year I could go out for that smaller peewee league or whatever they called it. And uh, I remember at the weigh-ins, you had to weigh in because you couldn't weigh more than 120 pounds, but you and you couldn't weigh less than 65. And I borrowed one of the linemen's shoes and I remember I drank, I think, I, think, I, felt, I felt like I drank, like I drank a, gallon a gallon of water, water and, and I put, put rocks, rocks in the, the you know, he, he wore, had big old feet, right? And so I put rocks in his shoes and then put my feet in. And I came in on the scale at 64 and a half pounds and they let me play. Uh, but after that season, I realized, okay. Scrapping. I'm, you were a yeah. scrapper, weren't you? But wrestling was my, was my yeah. sport. Yeah. And, and um, I never cut weight. Um, I, I, you know, my, I, I started out where I couldn't cut weight cause there wasn't another smaller weight class. And, um, so I did my, my dad wrestled, my uncle wrestled at Iowa state, my dad wrestled at university of New Mexico. And, and, um, so I came from a wrestling background. My dad was a referee, a high school referee. So I spent, I grew up going to tournaments and duels and stuff like that. And I rolling on the mat, but first time I ever did competitive was in junior high, you know, and then I started wrestling. And then from then on, I kind I kind of, I played soccer and stuff like that. But over time, wrestling was my sport and I committed a lot to it. And I wrestled freestyle and Greco and, you know, any way I could get on the mat, that was, 
that was my deal and and uh and i had a chance in new mexico later on in life you know i grew, grew up killed my first deer in the gila you know the legendary gila area yeah. where did you um, grow up in new mexico where was it again las cruces, las cruces. okay yeah and uh so but i got a chance to do some guiding and stuff growing up and and then after i finished my wrestling career i uh, uh i actually started riding bulls and um because i had had a lot of friends that were uh in the rodeo scene you know uh, uh, las cruces is a pretty agricultural base town and my grandpa was a farmer and you know so i had a lot of friends that rodeoed but again wrestling being my primary sport i was pretty concentrated on that and um but when i was done wrestling i said i want to try this you know and just like anybody else you, you get on some steers and you know stuff like that but what wrestling had taught me was i had i was a leg rider so i had really good for those of you wrestlers uh that understand what i'm talking about if you don't a leg rider is is a guy that when he gets on top he he slips a leg in and it's a control position where you can turn and get back points and and even pin guys but it's really uh, a guy that you have to have good hips you have to be a good scrambler you have to understand if you if you watch mma you'll see a lot of guys that'll when they take the back they'll they'll slip the hook the hook way they call them the hooks in and there's my beautiful daughter right there i seen see you know right what there. earlier i seen something moving around i'm like is that a- your elbow wave, like, no, wave. hi how are yeah, you that, that's my daughter she's uh she's hanging out with me at the office today um go. So um, what I did was uh, I transferred some of that, what I learned, and that balance and that stuff like that to, to bull riding. And, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I, when I first started, I, I think I just went by on grit and try and determination and then rode the first bull I ever got on, kind of hanging off the side. And, but I just wouldn't quit. And then I didn't ride 30 other head, you know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So I ended up going to a bull riding school. And so I did that for a couple of years and actually, you know, four or five years and and, uh, got to a pretty high level and and had actually moved to Texas and was living with uh, some buddies that were a lot better bull riders than I was. But you really had the perfect build to be a bull rider, though. Yeah, not giant, but small wrestler, strong. Right, yeah, especially yeah. leg rider, and, and so <laughs> yeah, yeah it, 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 so I enjoyed it, and then I got I, when I hit that twenty-five-year-old age, you know, they always say that your frontal vor, vortex, no cortex, your frontal lobe isn't developed till you're twenty-five, and I'm in. I can tell you almost to the to that that time, I was starting to think, okay, maybe this isn't the lifestyle I want for me. You know, I was starting to think about the future and about having a family and stuff like that. And I ended up moving back to Las Cruces and became a police officer there and did that for a couple of years and um, and then ended up going into sales um, for a company called uh, Hunter Engineering, which I still work with today, um, over 20 years now. And they uh, they produce uh, uh, balancers, tire changers, brake lays, alignment systems, things like that. And I'm the factory rep. And it's a great company because they make just the best stuff out there. And, uh, you know, if you've had an alignment done recently, you probably had it done on a hunter. And uh, um, so anyway, but it, it, it also gives me the free time to chase my dream, which started out when I moved to Colorado. I started riding, and that's when I got into the industry. And then from there, you and I met after I'd left uh, Eastman's Hunting Journal. I uh, worked for them for a while. And, and then, then I, I went independent, independent. but at the, in the time, I'd fallen in love really with, with photography and videography, and that's when 
in 2008, I started out back outdoors. And uh, yeah, so we're going into our 12th season. Hard so, to believe. Yeah. So tell me what Outback Outdoors is. Tell everybody what it is and, and what, well, it, it, how to find it out, and all that stuff. What it is now and what it started out to be, I hope, is is pretty synonymous still. We started out wanting to tell our adventures, share our adventures. We didn't, you know, there's tons of people out there that are better bow shots than me, that better hunters than me, better callers than me, better, you know, but I will say one thing. I'm a storyteller. And, you know, when you're in business, as you know, JP, your best bet is you find people and utilize their strengths. Don't try and make them into something that's not their strength. Find people where they they have strengths that you need. And um, and then and, and if they love that, if they if they're into that strength, which usually they are because they're good at it. Um, and then you encourage them and they flourish and, and they go from, uh, you know, just the mundane to getting up excited about working. I always wanted that. Um, well, we wanted to produce adventures. We wanted to show adventures and we didn't know a lot. We still don't know a lot, but I, we wanted to be able to capture our adventures and share them. And, um, so me and some buddies, Adam Wells, Dave Bronio, uh, some some of the, some guys uh, actually at the beginning, uh, Jim Brennan and Ryan Litwin, actually were the uh, along with Adam Wells, were the individuals the first four that we kind of came together and said let's do this and we partnered up and we ran camera for each other. We didn't have designated cameraman. We just kind of, but as we grew, you know, life happens and people go different ways and stuff like that. And it ended up being kind of after a couple of years, um, Ryan Litwin, which who was a, uh, a, a rodeo clown and now does some announcing and some uh, real estate, some different stuff. You know, they uh, uh, he um, anyway, it ended up being Adam DeBronio and myself for for many years and um and our whole goal was just to be able to share our adventures. But as time went on, we I really wanted to go more to the cinematic. And I wanted to be able to share an adventure, but I wanted the focal point to be the country and the animals and the adventure itself versus, hey, look at me, look at me. You know, I didn't want to do that. And so as the DSLRs came around and you got more into a cinematic type of style of, of videography, I really worked on understanding that and becoming better at that and and i I think we've come a long way i think we've uh learned a lot and uh you know i'm our success is directly relevant to the people that are involved you know i couldn't do it i couldn't do it by myself i'm 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 a good storyteller but I'm not the best cameraman. I'm I'm not the best editor. I'm not the best, you know, all of these different things. And so other people step into those roles, and you have a partnership and a team, so to speak. And that's what makes it fun, right? Right. You know? Well, you guys have I done would, well. You you won you won some awards. You won awards on your, on your uh, ibex hunt, didn't you? On that video, we we uh, the the first ibex film I actually sent out. Uh, on, I didn't realize this at the time, but there's these independent film festivals all over the country, heck, all over the world. Uh, we won an award in, uh, actually, we won three awards for the first Ibex film, which was The Rock and Ibex Adventure. And then, the then which is where I went to the Florida Mountains in southern New Mexico, and we filmed that hunt. 
and I never even fired a shot. It was such a such a difficult, hard to film uh, bow hunt. And then I drew it again, and that was in 2014. I drew it again in 2016, and we went back, and I did kill a a little Billy the last day, and we made another film out of that, and that film won. Uh, believe it or not, it won the best bow hunting film in a huge European bow hunting tour. Wow! Uh, a guy, a guy, uh, Errol got a hold of me from I think France. Errol got a hold of me and he said, "Hey, you know, I I saw the first one. I know you're coming out with the second one. Can we enter it in this film festival?" And I said, "Yeah." We ended up winning best film, and uh, and then we've won some other awards. We won a uh, the Yeti uh, best film of the Badlands Backpack uh, um, Film Festival that's usually at the ATA show every year in, I, that was 2019, uh, a film called Adoption, which is a story about my dad and um, and me, because uh, my biological father left, I can't, you know, I didn't remember him. He left before I was so young. I didn't remember him. And then my mom remarried, and, and my dad is is my dad. He's not my biological father, but he's my dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yep. I told I, – I always wanted to tell that story. Well, again, as I said earlier, my dad didn't hunt. But as I started filming, he wanted to film me, and he got in the, uh, in the excited mode of learning cameras, and so – he just instead of hunting with a bow or a rifle, he started hunting with a camera, and he would go with me on my whitetail hunts and some stuff like that. And and so I I was for for three four years I was wanting to tell that story, and I didn't know how. Um, but we used the backdrop of of hunting, telling that story. I, mean, I, I could use the backdrop of wrestling, but I didn't have the footage right. And so we told that story, and and that was it was a pretty successful film, and uh, so yeah, uh, that's that's kind of us in a nutshell. Um, you know, the whole thing is, and I hope people get this idea is, we want to capture imaginations. That's that's Outback Outdoors' whole goal is to capture the imagination. I mean, whether it be the photography that the guys do, or or uh, uh, the videos, or whatever. Um, if I can hand you or show you a Instagram post or a uh, in a, the example of an episode you know that's on Sportsman's Channel of Outback Outdoors or a film that we've done, and you can see it, but you're not cold, you're not wet, and you're not tired, but you still capture or feel that uh, adrenaline, that excitement that we have, then we've done our job. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I watched both of The Rock. Um, on your Ibex hunt because I also Ibex hunted so it's pretty remarkable because you you put you put that hunt in reality where I could sit on my couch and watch it and relive the suckiness of that hunt because <laughs> it's not yeah. an easy hunt it is a very one of the toughest things I've ever done and I didn't go near as long as you did but tell everybody where they can find these because I think it's I, I want people to I want people to watch it. I mean, it was, yeah. you know what you guys did, you did really well. And you, you said something, Trevin, that I think is really good. If you're a young listener and you listen to this and you're a good storyteller, get into sales. Yeah. I mean, my, my grandpa always told me, and my grandpa was an incredible man. I'd start crying if I, if I told all the stories about him, but he'd always tell me that growing up, you know, we'd go hunting every weekend and then we'd always go to my grandparents for lunch. They'd always cook us, you know, something. So we'd go squirrel hunting. We'd come back with five squirrels and my grandpa would be like, JP, 
tell me a story of that squirrel. And I mean, an hour later, is still telling a story on killing one squirrel. My grandpa would always right. tell me, he goes, right. JP, I don't know what you're going to do when you get older, but maybe you got to sell cars. You just got to do something in sales because I love right. telling stories. And so right. you are a great storyteller and you're a great storyteller through the camera um, with emotion. I think, uh, you know, it's like music. Like you guys are like making music. You know, you listen to a really, really good song and it kind of takes you back somewhere. And it gives you these weird feelings that you like, oh, man, I just think of high school again. If I could do it over again, you know, like a song can do that for you. Right. Your videos right. do. You're, you're, you guys do that really well. Well, and I think that music we choose to back. I mean, you have to understand there's a lot of different ways to evoke an emotion. You have um, all the senses. Well, with video, we don't have the sense of smell. <laughs> you know, the hearing can be difficult when you're when you're dealing with being in the real world out out and about and if you get cruddy windy days you know it makes your audio cruddy but we have video we do have audio and then you have music and so i even use music in a my storytelling because uh, and that's why we use i don't know if you're familiar with shane smith and the saints at austin texas it's a kind of a texas red dirt type of band we use a lot of their music because they are a storytelling band if you will shane smith is a phenomenally gifted vocalist you know uh musician the whole band is i've seen them in concert a couple times there's they're one of those bands that's as good in concert or better than they are on their album and um but they tell a story and when i hear music i envision my mind the way my mind works is i envision what imagery would match that so, so i'm a little, little bit different, different. You, know, you know when, when I'm, I'm um listening to um a song let's say they come out with a new album i'm envisioning where this song would fit into a storytelling mode or a or a a part of a story and uh so you have all of those things but i think the key is how do you match them in a way that's seamless so if i put a heavy rock and roll because i like this song let's say and i put this heavy you know guitar hard guitar deep thumping bass or whatever behind a scene and it takes you out of that moment i've i've done you a disservice rather than being able to bring in a song that sucks you closer to the to the story that's that's the key i think that's the the that tight tightrope walk that as a storyteller that you that you do sitting around a campfire the inflection of your voice the way you t retell a story you know you could either bore somebody or you could have them on the edge of their seat with the same story so understanding that and reading your audience in a live setting is very different than trying to tell a story for an audience of you know millions and millions of people that watch our show and that was hard because I didn't have the immediate feedback as I'm building this story. But what I found was if I build the story and, and we here in the office, the guys working on it are captivated, brought back to that moment, usually we're pretty close to, ca you know, to capturing that adventure. So, so. music is magical. Um, it is. I, I really think so. And you, you guys, you do a very, very good job with it. So it made me think right when you said that, like if Shane Smith and the Saints, I wrote it down because I want to go listen to it. I love music. Um, 
the movie Legends of the Fall. Oh, yes. They used music so good. And, you know, they're in an outdoor setting. And I believe it was Montana they filmed most mm-hmm. of that, what's yeah. on your shirt. And that's what you guys do so well. So it made me think, you know, because I am in sales. Um, so next, you know, maybe I got to Zoom at 11 o'clock. I got I a sales presentation. Maybe I'll just, as I get into my sales pitch, I'll just have a little music on my phone and I'll just play it in the back. Imagine, imagine a salesman yeah. walking in for a sales presentation and say, hold on a minute, and you're just playing their own little music like to captivate so, you. <laughs> two songs from Shane Smith and the Saints I want you to listen to. Geronimo. Okay. And The Mountain. The Mountain. Mm-hmm. Okay, those two songs. Listen to those, and they have a plethora of good music. But those two songs, if you listen to those, and you don't think this that this band is kick, you know, kick butt, yeah. then uh, then you're not living. Um, well, I'll listen to but, it right away. I love man. I love music. I, when we mm-hmm. get off, I'm gonna I'm gonna play these guys up and, and, and check them yeah. out. They probably you need to you need to contact them and get some shirts and be wearing shirts. Well, I have, I've, I, I do. And, and I've, we've been wanting to take them hunting and it's just, their schedule never worked. And then we they were actually coming in concert, uh, or like the third of January and uh, some, they, their bus burned. I mean, oh. literally everything in their bus, it burned to the ground. And, um, after that, and that was in December, I think, or or right around that time. And so they were kind of scrambling just to do their dates. They were using, I think, they were renting guitars, and I mean, they were. So anyway, yeah, it's one of those things. And now I just heard, poor guys, um, one of the one of the band members has COVID, so they're everything's on lockdown. You know, all the dates that they had, they're 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 getting through this 14-day quarantine and the guy's feeling good i mean it's not like from what i followed on their instagram i think everything's okay but they have to you know everybody and then everybody else has to get tested you know and all that stuff so they've been dealt a uh, a pretty couple of tough tough road but these guys are just amazing and and i saw something and this is what really captivates me about a man's character is i saw a deal on instagram the other day and um, through this hard time, you know, you could sit and you could whine and you could cry, and then there Shane Smith is, and he's writing music. Like he's he's not in this downtime. He's not sitting there whining and complaining about what you know what cards he's been dealt. He's turning around and taking this moment or whatever and these ideas and and getting creative with it. And I, um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge goal setter, and I'm a huge proponent of of sometimes you just got to suck it up you yeah. know what i mean yeah and you know you're a wrestler you understand yeah yeah and and you too i mean you coming from such a fitness um aspect you know i i have two acls on my left knee and i still play uh on two different soccer teams um over 40 over 40 my daughter calls them grandpa's united um <laughs> hey but, still doing it though hey but we're still playing and you know it's 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 so much fun you just can't lay down and 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 quit and and i've got so much stuff going on you have to be organized but it's anyway i i i, I digress there but uh, it's it's a lot of fun and and uh so yeah, music can really set a tone. I think good videography. I think understanding um, the basics of videography, rule of thirds, understanding cameras, understanding how cameras work. If you understand 
how a camera works photography videography in a manual setting you can basically pick up any camera and run it now it might take you a few times to figure out okay what do, you know where's this where is the iso on a video video camera uh versus you know the something else um or a uh, you know like these dslrs you know you're adjusting your iso you're adjust, adjusting your your f-stop your you know your shutter speeds all of these different things for the conditions um and and then what that gets with the lenses that we run that gives us a, uh, on, at times a shallower depth of field which also gives you more of a cinematic look. Um, there's all these things that compound, uh, compound. Did I say that right? They build on themselves. Let's say that. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. Um, I I you know at one time I'm like man I'm gonna I want to do this to where all I do is this. But the reason I haven't quit my day job is because this industry is so fickle. And what I mean by that is it's a great industry. The people are awesome, but it's a small industry. It's very small. People Have don't realize to, that. Yeah. yeah. Have you been to ATA? I've never gone to it, no. Okay. Well, if you go into ATA, um, it, you got SHOT, which is your shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show in Vegas every year, and uh, or it has been um, quite a bit lately. I, I actually have gone to SHOT in Orlando. That's, That's how old I am. It hasn't been, been there in a while, but you get shot you got ata which is the archie trade association you walk into the ata show and you would think it's a it would be immense you know pretty much a lot most you know 90 percent of the players in the archery community are there and it's not very big yeah it's not very big so you know this we're in a very sensitive time with hunting too with what's happening in the media with guns and hunting and that spills over into bow hunting even though we're not shooting a firearm it spills over that hunting aspect and then on top of that we are in the hunting world more people are dying of natural causes than we're recruiting so trips like you and your buddy's son and your son going out to antelope hunt in wyoming that is huge you know my daughter being able to kill her first buck in wyoming uh two years ago being able for her to talk about understanding where she knows uh she understands where meat comes from um you know some people think you meat comes from the super you know, king supers or the, the grocery store whatever yeah, yeah. you know grocery store you have in your area no it doesn't come cellophane pre-packed something died Something had to be butchered. Something had to be processed. Well, we probably 90, 95% wild game mainly is our protein. And my daughter knows exactly where that can, comes from. And she's been involved in that process. And she can speak intelligently to other people that are 14, 15 years old and that are being um, influenced by today's pop culture, which let's be honest there is a i don't want to call it a fad but there's definitely an anti-hunting thread anti-gun thread that runs through our pop culture um it, it it's it's funny how when covid hit all of these anti-gun people were lining up at gun stores They're to buy guns, guns. yeah but you know that's a that's a totally different story <laughs> we could be with, on that one for a long time yeah but with avery it's the ability for her to understand that and she hunts because she wants to spend time with me. Um, she, I don't know that Avery's 
main goal is it gets up every day matter of fact i know it's not is to get up and and get ready somehow for hunting season but she enjoys it because we get to spend time together and um she understands the process and you know if you've ever seen a factory farm uh you know it's you look at the the life those animals lead and i would much rather be able to take something that's free and wild and and uh, you know it doesn't have the hormones doesn't have all the steroids all of that stuff you know shoved into it and and uh you know it's been able to pass on its genetics and and we play a part as a conservation aspect of hunting you know the uh fishing game of the states we hunt in they rely on hunters to help manage population levels it's important you know to understand that there is a box and that box is an ecosystem and animals when they get to a certain number they're pushing the borders of that ecosystem and in order to be healthy and sustainable we need to keep them at a certain level so that's where hunters come in yeah I think if animal rights activists understood that, what you just talked about, how as a hunter, you are the number one conservationist on the planet. Like everything we do from the money raised to the taking of hopefully mostly the older, most age class animal and what it does to help the animals thrive. They would understand that hunters like you and I and the the hundreds of thousands of hunters that are out there truly love animals. Like I truly love animals. I yeah. love to hunt animals, I love to eat animals, but I love to watch animals. I mean, we live on a golf right. course now, and we have geese walking up and down here. You see, there's, there's one of those Instagrams, Nature is Metal. Um, yes. And, you know, it shows that, and it shows the reality of how, how nature is harsh and brutal. And as an outdoorsman, I don't like to see other animals eat other animals. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I kind of got a softer heart. I have no problem harvesting an animal I'm going to shoot and eat. But I don't like to see other animals getting killed and gore right. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, if they just really understood, we're not some bloodthirsty, ravaged, barbarian caveman that wants to just go out and annihilate every animal in the population and beat our chests. You know, they see it. They see somebody who shoots an animal and they pose with it and they think, well, it's bragging and it's posing and it's so egotistical. No, it's the whole process of everything you just explained getting up every morning and getting my workout in at 6 a.m., eating good, doing another workout in the evening, a heavy backpack hike every single day because when I go out hunting and shooting my bow every single day, so when I go out hunting, I can enjoy every process of that, make a clean, quick, ethical kill, take it apart in the field, bring it home, feed my family with it, get healthier because of it, and try to pass that on. And I think that's correct. a couple different things that come to mind when you say that, Trevin, is Social media is our kids are growing up in a social media world. And I love social media. I mean, it's important. Social media is not going away. I don't think, you know, it's anything's no. possible in our society today. Now, I, no, nothing is, is past what I believe anymore, but um, they grow up in it. And I, on, I said this to my friend the other day. I believe social media is the devil's playground. I really do, because it's dividing our country in a bad way. You got some somebody just a keyboard warrior sitting there just attacking every post that they don't believe in, and then these people attack back, and then other people chime in, they attack back. Instead of being a an overwhelming place of positivity and 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 good, and I think you do right. a great job doing that, and I think if we can teach our kids that, hey, hey, enjoy social media. It's a way to connect. It's a way to you and I have been connected through it from day one. I've never met you in person. Never had an opportunity to shake your hand. One day we will. 
We've hunted two yeah. different properties, by the way, Chuck's place and Dennis Perkins's place at the same time, almost same time. And we've never been able to actually meet. We'll tell that story. I'll tell the story in a minute. But oh um, yeah, I forgot about that, Missouri. Yeah. So we can be and teach our children to be a positive force on social media. And of course, I have political, and I posted one political, but it was a funny one this morning. You'll see it on my Facebook. So five years ago, um, it just popped up my time hop. We had my kids were fighting. My, I have a fifteen-year-old boy, thirteen-year-old girl, and. 11-year-old boy. Well, five years ago, they were, you know, five years younger. And my, my daughter is in the middle and my youngest son, they go at it all the time. And so we made this get along shirt. We wrote get along on it. And then uh, a John 12, 15, 12, or whatever it was, a, a scripture verse that says love each other. And we made them, we put them both in the shirt and put it over them. So they both had to wear it and they hated it. And I, and I just posted, I'm like, wouldn't it be great? You know, I, I'm thinking of mass making these shirts and sending them out all over our country because people just need to get along. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great to put Trump and Pelosi in that same shirt? And so I went to Photoshop. <laughs> I Photoshopped Trump's head on one, my son, and Pelosi's head on my daughter, and I posted it side by side. But I don't get political on it because I, I'm never going to win somebody's vote for the way that I want to vote just by trashing the way that they believe. I mean, what makes America great is we all get to believe what we want to believe. You know, that does make but, America yeah. great, but it also can be damaging. And, and social media is a, a damaging aspect of that. And the last thing I want to say, cause it's all kind of things that you've said was hunting is a small industry. People don't realize that. And they keep saying these statistics that we're losing more and more hunters every year. But what I'm, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. I know it's statistically it's true but I think it's what we're, where we're losing it is like what you said, the, the generation after us and the generation after them are not getting into it the way that we did. We're losing right. them to something. Are we losing them to technology? Are we losing them to social media and just not the, the work ethic? I'm not sure, but our age group, the, the fitness bow hunter, the fitness hunter today, there's more of them in Arizona than there's ever been because they're all in the spots I used to go seven years ago that they were never there. Now I'm like, I right. thought we're losing hunters. But what we are losing is that next group coming up. So things that you're doing, I, I watch you on your Instagram, and you're, all, you're always taking kids, taking them to Kentucky, right. taking them to Nebraska. Ray Howell, you know, he's been on multiple times on the, on the Bit Archer podcast, what he's doing with Kicking Bear and introducing kids right. to the outdoors. We need more of that if we want no, our I, sport to continue. Yeah. I agree. And, and one of the jumping back to social media, I, I was sharing this the other day that, that, you know, when people post stuff on social media, it is their it is the cream of the crop. It is the, them at their best, if you will. And what we've done in a way is we've done a couple of things, one being that we've put this false sense of reality for us to compare ourselves to. Okay, so when somebody posts and their feed is completely them at the gym and I'm struggling with getting to the gym, how does that make me feel? Right. right. Well, hopefully it's more motivational, but and we, but we also live in a society where, where that, that has become, become the standard, standard for beauty. It's become the standard for 
our self-worth likes you know it's that dopamine dump that comes from we look at our phone how many likes did I get how many thumbs up did I get how many comments did I receive on this post and it's tied to our self-worth and that has nothing to do with our self-worth you know we were created in the image of a creator that is far greater and far beyond that yet we are comparing ourselves to this image that is filtered an image that is monitored that is only shot at this selfie angle that's just right and it's false and then the other problem I think we've done that comes from social media and again I use social media and I think it can be a great tool but it's a shortcut okay I could come on social media and I could play myself off as somebody that I'm not. So I have the ability to be whoever I want to be through through images and video, but in reality, um, that's not who I am. So I, I, I think we do that in real life anyway, but it's a much smaller scale. I mean, let's be honest. Why do you look at what you wear? Why do you comb your hair right I mean because you want to look presentable you want to put your best foot forward you know the old saying you know you would go to you only have one chance to make a first impression we want to make that great first impression but with social media there's so many ways we can dupe the system right. and um, I mean I could put on there that I'm in the gym every day I don't go to the gym I mean I, I do other things but I'm not a gym rat just I don't have time it's not a high enough priority for me um, I do other things okay um, but that's not me and and so one of the things I have to be very careful of is when I'm posting things that I'm posting honesty um, and that it's positive so uh, I think those are the two main da uh, pitfalls of social media but on the flip side you also it's also a great way to connect um, it can be and um, I, I think every every everything good has uh, too much of a good thing can be bad, right? So there's everything, everything within, within moderation. moderation. But uh, I'm, excited I'm excited at at, at where the industry is going. I think we need people more like you and Ray Hal and you know guys like that 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 do see that next generation and 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 you know raise raise touch more people's hearts and minds than. Than I will ever, and I'm I'm really ex uh, I'm, I'm excited to call him one of my mentors, um, and and so yeah. I mean, speaking of Ray, it's I mean you know I've uh, I kind of met you and met Ray, and then you guys knew each other, and then Dennis Howell, and and uh, you know I mean Dennis Perkins, and and uh, uh, you know all of that stuff. Uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, maybe talk about Missouri. Yeah, so I'm. I go, I've been to Missouri a few times. Um, I go there one late season. Ray's like, you know, I, I, I met Ray in 1994. Um, sorry about my dog in the background, but no I met worries. Ray in, in 1994. I told a funny story when he was on the very first podcast that he did with me. Um, <clears throat> so he liked wrestlers at UW lacrosse at the school that we went to. My brother was two years older than I was. My brother's a bad dude. I mean, big muscular, my height, but 220 pounds and just solid muscle. And he was a national champion wrestler, three-time All-American. He's just a study. He's a police officer now, 18 years, something like that. <clears throat> One of my idols that I look at. I shouldn't say idols, but a guy I really, really look up to. Right, sure. Well, Ray really enjoyed wrestlers. <clears throat> and so I'm sitting. 
there one day my brother said, hey, this guy, Ray Hall, wants you to uh, do a job for him. And Ray owned the steel business back then. So he asked if I could uh, drive some blueprints from La Crosse, Wisconsin to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which was an hour and a half drive. And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. My buddy, John Severson, I don't know if you know John. He's vice president of uh, Faradine. John Faradine, yeah. Yeah, We Mm -hmm. grew up since kindergarten together. So we've been best friends. Is he still with Faradine? Yeah, he's vice president. Yeah. He's been there long. I mean, he's... 20 companies they own now. They got, he's got a good Yeah, I know. So yeah. John's girlfriend at the time lived in Eau Claire, and we lived together in college. We roomed together in college. We went to college together. So we, we did everything together. And I said, John, you want to go with? And he goes, yeah, I'll pick up my girlfriend. So we drive there. We borrow one of our roommate's cars, drive there. On the way back, we're driving back, and we pass this school bus, just like everybody else is passing. Well, we get back to the, our apartment, and my roommate Brad says, where have you been? My parents have been calling. The cops have been calling you're in big trouble. And I'm like, for what? Like we weren't doing it. I mean, I was a partier back then, big time partier, but we weren't doing any party. And we did just honest kids going back and forth. Well, the school bus driver claimed that I passed him when he had a stop sign out and he wasn't going to give me a ticket. He said, but then he said, I reached my arm out and I flipped him the bird. And that was not me. I wouldn't do that. I mean, right. had I been under the influence, I was wild. I would have, that would, I wouldn't have put it past me. But we never touched a drop of anything that day. And I'm like, I didn't do that. So that was how I first met Ray. He paid me $20. And as a college kid, $20 was like everything. Well, it ended up costing me $280 in a fine and a ticket. And that's how I ended up meeting Ray. And But Ray had called me. He's like, man, you got to go hunt Dennis Perkins' place and go late season. It's the best. And so I went. And you know how it is when you go to Dennis's. He was driving a little geo tracker, and he would take you. His Hummer. His That's Hummer. He calls he it his Hummer. He calls his Hummer. And this one morning, he said to me, he said, hey, I got to take you extra early because I'm picking some guys up. And it was you and a couple other guys. And, and he said your name. I'm picking some guys up. Uh, Trevin, I think you know him. I'm like, Trevin Stoltzfus? That's how I say your last name, right? Stoltzfus? Right, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I know Trevin. I've never got a chance to meet him. He goes, well, maybe you'll get to meet him. I don't remember why we didn't get to meet, but he dropped me off in the one stand on the, the place that he leased out, you know, through Eagleville or wherever it was on that, on oh, that yeah. far lease. 55 minutes before light. And it was, he said to me, he goes, it's really, really cold out this morning. So if you get cold, just call me. I'll come get you. I don't, I don't expect you to sit long. It's 20 minutes before light. And I am not making any of this up. I'm doing squats, air squats in my tree stand because I'm so cold. I made it maybe 30 minutes after light, you know, after light. And I called Dennis. I'm like, Dennis, I can't take anymore. Well, that night was my last night there. And he took me past his personal property to a little Mm -hmm. bitty chunk. And it was the greatest night of my bow hunting whitetail life. So I'm sitting on this broken down stand. I mean, it was the stand I know exactly what you're talking I know exactly what you're talking about I think you killed my buck I think you killed my buck one of you guys did so I remember sitting there and and there was all those turnips and I watched I don't know how many two and a half year old bucks walk by me and I turned around and I look and there's this eight pointer and he had it looked like baseball bats coming out of his head and I'm like oh he's gonna follow and he's just gobbling these turnips up sugar beets I think they were sugar beets yep and he's gobbling. I'm like, he's going to come through at 20 yards. I'm going to kill him. It's going to be so amazing. It, it was the greatest night. I mean, I seen probably 15 bucks that I let go. And that buck starts walking. And at 40 yards, I couldn't turn around and shoot him. I was waiting to come side. At 40 yards, he turns around and walks away and disappears. And I think the next day, 
then I left. I had to drive back to Wisconsin when I lived there, and Dennis texted me. He goes, that big eight-pointer got killed by Trevin and his group, and you guys killed. He was a – it was just a – unbelievable buck and so maybe eight year old deer, deer something, something like that, that. I, mean, I mean just a, just an old deer, deer. Um, um adam, adam killed, killed that buck, buck. um yeah, yeah. Like, like two, two days, days later, later or something, something. Yeah. yeah i went there again. I, and, and i, I sat, sat that stand, stand the day after you did and i saw him but he never came into range with me here's an interesting thing when i first met dennis um i was hunting another property in the area and I actually first met Dennis through Ray Hal when we did a kicking bear camp uh, where people came in and hunted turkeys with us. And then anyway, so that's how I met Dennis. Um, and uh, then I wasn't seeing anything. And so he calls, I call him and I say, hey, you got any does? I just want to shoot something. He goes, yeah. He says, but. I'll come get you. I'll take you out. And he took me to his place, which if you know Dennis, Dennis Perkins' place is like, the. I mean, he, he's forgotten more about Whitetail than I'll ever know. Yeah. And it's Magical. pristine. And yeah. So I'm sitting in this tree stand and my job is to shoot does. And I'm seeing all of these deer come by. And the cool thing was, that, well, I see the cool thing. I, I was new to whitetail hunting. I hadn't white, hunted whitetail. I was 33 years old before I ever got in a tree stand. And uh, uh, so I was very I was new very to whitetail hunting. hunting. But once, once I, I did it, man, I was addicted, man. I, was addicted, addicted, man. Man. I, just, I just, to the chest, to the match. chest match. So, so we're, we're sitting there, there and, and it's getting, getting dark. dark. And, and I have not, I have seen, not any seen any does. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden these two deer these come two in deer come and, or this one deer comes in and I'm looking and the last thing he last told thing me, William dropped me off is he said, don't shoot any button bucks. And I'm like, yeah, sure. No, no problem. No problem. Right. What's dark. Dark. Okay. And you know how a button buck will have a little brown patch. It might not even have a little bump, but if you look close enough, you can look at the face and after time, now I look and I'm like, I can't believe I mistook this for a stinking doe. Shoot this doe, what I think is a doe, and it doesn't go far, right? And then it begins getting dark. It's still still legal light. Another one comes in, and I'm looking, and I shoot that one. I got two does, man. I'm stoked. I shot two button bucks. Oh, no. <laughs> I never heard about that. Oh, yeah. Dennis, well, Dennis he, he's like a steel vault. He won't say anything to anybody, but that's how. And here's the deal. That's a ticket to get yourself booted off that beautiful place exactly, right there. Right? You know, here I am in this Mecca, and I'm doing exactly what he asked me not to do. And I just told him, I said, I am so sorry. I felt so bad. I'm like, Dennis, I will I will pay for those. I know those would have been good bucks at some juncture. He goes, and he finally just stops and just laughed. He laughed. So, I mean, belly laugh. You know, he's a big old guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, stout as all get out and he just laughed and laughed and laughed and you know we've been great friends every i probably talk to him once a month yeah, i mean still i don't hunt there i've got uh, a place in missouri but i'll be honest he's taught me more about wildlife and whitetail management than i've ever learned from anybody else um and i manage i help to manage a property out in southern missouri and then I, I've got a place in, in Kansas that I help manage. And um, I'm just ate up with whitetail. 
and that whole chess match. So it's it's yeah. pretty exciting. It's I pretty went exciting. there two years ago. So I've always tried to get on his personal property. I've hunted his property, but I was always hunting the lease, uh, oh, sorry, right. which was yeah. phenomenal place. I mean, you which couldn't... which I had an encounter the first year he had it with a buck that was one seventy four that ducked my string out of a ground blind at thirty two yards, and he was probably a hundred seventy inch deer, hundred seventy five inch deer at that time called Bonfire. We we nicknamed him Bonfire because he looked like he had a bonfire coming out of his rack, and my cousin shot him the next year 204 uh, they've on killed, that place yeah they've killed like just off dennis's personal place i don't i think i'm right with this i think this is what he told me they've killed 11 bucks and art with archery that have 200 right. inches or better that's right. that's unbelievable right. i seen the big the year that you were there um that you and i were there at the same time there was a six pointer that i had two different encounters with that that would have pushed high 140s potentially 150 when he came in I mean, he looked like a steer coming through. And I'm like, right. oh, gosh, I'm going to kill this thing. And he came through, and he had no brow tines. And Dennis yep. is like, you're lucky you didn't shoot him. I almost shot him. I didn't even realize you couldn't shoot. When was that? Well, it was the year, you, the year, okay. it was the year that the I big saw that deer. was killed. I, I saw that deer. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about because he was amazing. And um, we couldn't shoot him at the time. Because yeah, he was only was, a six point. Yeah, they have to have four on one side. Yeah. Yeah, he was yeah. a giant. He was a giant. But two years ago, I think it was two years ago, a um, good friend of mine who's been hunting Dennis's personal place. I could never get on Dennis's personal place. And I introduced right. my friend Ricky. His name is Ricky Roberson. He's an un- we call him Big Country. He's an unbelievable dude. You'd love him. And he hunts in Texas like crazy. He, he just chums up with Dennis, and him and Dennis become like this. You know, he drives up and he, he brings the shrimp and everything and the corn and they do the shrimp boils. And, and I'm like, Ricky, how'd you get on Dennis's personal place? I can't get on his place. Every time I call Dennis, I'm like, you got any openings? He's like, I don't have any openings. And he doesn't even have to, I mean, he doesn't advertise anything. It's the same nope. guys going nope. every single year. Mm-hmm. And Ricky calls me. Now, I had had a couple, this is two years ago, I'd hunted all over the place already. And, you know, I have kids, and I got to run them to football and everything. And so my wife's like, hey, she lets me hunt, and she's beautiful, and she's an angel. But there is a limit as well, and I don't ever want to overstep that because I also want to be a responsible husband and a, and a good husband. And a good right, dad. right. And Ricky calls me, and he goes, this is on like a Monday. And he goes, dude, he goes, you're the only guy I thought of. He goes, Saturday I'm leaving to Dennis's place, and my buddy just backed out. Can you go? And I'm, I'm driving somewhere with my wife. I'm like, hun. Here's the deal. If I don't go, I don't get another in. Like, this is my in to be in his, his place. So on Wednesday, I booked a flight. I was there Saturday. And the big bucks were all locked up. Every big buck was locked up. I, I filmed every, I, I put them all on Instagram and Facebook. I don't know how many bucks I filmed that were at that 135 to 140 inch which for you know for a, a trophy hunter that's nothing for I'm not a trophy hunter, I right. haven't killed that many big whitetails. I killed a 144 inch eight pointer, I killed a 150 inch in Missouri at a different place uh, the year before that, and then I killed you know some 130 inches, and these bucks are coming through and I'm like oh. I just looking at it going it's it's got to be bigger like that's got to be 150 I'm like it's not so I can't shoot it. I passed up probably seven or eight bucks that were all within 20 yards coming through. I could have shot. Could have, you know, I, I'm just going to say I could have killed him. And the last night, Dennis kept saying, he goes, can you extend your stay? It, can you stay longer? 
And I'm like, I, I can't, I got to get back. I've already been here six days. And he's like, can you just stay a couple more days? I know if you stay a couple more days, you'll kill Buck. That's the kind of guy he is. You know, oh, yeah. I, I had paid for the days. And he's like, I, you don't have to pay anything else. You're my buddy. Just stay. And right. when, I, when I say pay, you know, I don't want anybody to think like it's, it's a high fence. It's just he manages. This is right. wide yeah. open. I mean, right. come gun season, people are lined up along his property trying to kill the bucks. It's wide open land. It's just a lot of acreage. And he manages for world-class deer. So it's, you're, he's, an, he's an outfitting, you know. He's just got a world-class place. My buddy Ricky, the, the one night uh, Dennis had said, he goes, hey, here's a buck I want culled out of here. If you see this buck, kill. It's like a 155-inch 10-pointer. Just had a weird shape rack. Well, of course, Ricky, I get a text one night, just killed that cull buck. I'm like, you, you got to be kidding me, Ricky. Yeah, I killed it dead. I mean, it's just one of the biggest bucks probably I'd ever kill in my life. You know, he's right. calling it off the property. It's a cull buck to get off yeah. that property. But Dennis yeah. is a world-class guy. He had a lot of, uh, he had a lot of issues with um, raccoons and coyotes and bobcats. And I told him, I said, hey, my brother is a big-time trapper. My brother loves to trap. I call him the trapping fool. And my brother went there last year and ended up getting a bobcat, a beautiful bobcat off his property, and they trapped some coon and, and all that kind of stuff. And now he's going to be going there every year for Dennis just to, just to kind of have That's awesome. So, yeah. That's awesome. Um, let's, let's finish up with a couple of things here. You got some fitness-type competition things you're doing. Yeah. I, 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 tell, yeah. tell them about that. I, I'm really interested in that. So um, in the past, I've done something called Train to Hunt, which I, I don't do anymore. Um, and uh, primarily because of my knees. Um, and that was where CrossFit meets bow hunting. Um, a lot of CrossFit exercise done throughout a course for time. There's some 3D shooting and stuff like that. What I'm doing now is called the Alpha Bow Hunting uh, competition. And it's really awesome. You start with a, it's the whole goal of Phil Mendoza's alpha bow hunting is to, and you can check it out on alphabowhunting.com. But the whole goal is to create a base of what is your true, your realistic, uh, effective range. Okay. I can go out in my backyard and shoot at 60 yards with no wind. And I, 60 yards is easily my effective range. But it's not my effective range all the time. Understanding under duress, in windy conditions, animal behavior, uneven ground, all of this stuff changes your effective range. And understand, yeah, exactly. And everybody goes and they shoot 60 yards and that's how far I'll shoot a buck. Well, okay. What if the wind's blowing? What if the buck's alerted? What You know, there's all of these factors that end up cutting down your effective range. Well, that's the core. Uh, and he actually does a course on this, which if you get a chance, you can do it online. I would definitely take it. Um, it's a great way to test yourself because I might have an effective range one day of 65 yards in a hunting situation. The next day it might be 35 because of the conditions or whatever. Um, and I think you have to, that has to be determined beforehand. And I tell you this because this competition came out of this whole mindset, this idea of being able to understand our effective range. The alpha bow hunting comes in and you end up um, testing yourself on a 3D course. Now, the 3D course is similar to a lot of other 3D courses, except for the scoring is um, they don't count the five. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. 
12s, 10, no 8, no 5. So if you understand a 3D, the lungs are an 8, then you have a circle, and then a small dot in the middle, which is a 12. If you hit the body anywhere else, it's usually a 5, or a 0 is a miss. Well, with this, with the Alpha Bowhunter, a 5 is a minus 3. Okay, so it's almost kind of like the, the Fred Bear scoring system, but it's a little bit changed. So you shoot a 3D course first, uh, 20 targets. I think it's, yeah, it's 20 targets. And then that kind of ranks you where you, you are in your division. Okay, men's masters, which is, I'm, I shoot in that, it's 40 and over. They have a, a super masters, 50 and older, and then they have an open, which is, you know, 39 and under. Um, and it ranks you. And then you go head-to-head, -head, the head-to-head -head competition. And this is where it gets really interesting. They have uh, five targets, and the last two targets, <clears throat> they're two identical courses side-by-side. -side. So imagine if you're standing on a shooting line, and there's five targets, okay? The, the closest two targets are the identical. They're just, uh, the, the, they're mirror courses of each other. You start out the course back-to-back. And you run down to the first target and you take a sled and you drag it out. Now, mind you, you're not running with arrows or a bow. You have a bow caddy, if you will, like a golf caddy. You have a guy with all six of your arrows. Mind you, there's five targets. You have one mulligan you can use, but it takes time. This is a timed course. And on each target, there is a clay pigeon, like a shooting clay pigeon, right? Hanging in the middle of the tin. You run out. You drag a sled out to a predetermined position. You run back. You grab your bow. You knock an arrow. You shoot the first target. That's your closest target. Then from there on, it gets further out. Okay. Then you run to the next station. You grab a sandbag that is there, like a, a, a brute sandbag or, you know, like a CrossFit sandbag. You grab that. You run to your sled. You drop your sandbag in it. You run back. Now you shoot the next target. Again, what's happened? You have the adrenaline rush of competing one-on-one -on -one with someone. All you care about is beating that other person. And then it's a, it's, it's a bracket. You advance forward. If you hit the clay pigeon or the clay target, it's no addition to your time. If you hit outside of the clay but within the eight, it's a 20-second penalty. And then a five, is a, 40, a five or a miss is a 40-second penalty. Okay, so you can imagine a bad shot, that'd be bad. So the key is how fast do you go that you can shoot accurately? Okay, you only go as fast as you can so that you can shoot accurately because you can't outrun bad shooting because you could be the fastest guy on the course, but if you can't hit clay targets, the other guy could basically walk the course and he'd beat you. Okay, so that's that whole thing, and you just keep going until you have a winner. And it's so much fun because what it's doing, number one, is it's working on finding out what your effective range is out to a certain distance under duress, under adrenaline, under not exhaustion, but at least out of breath. And that's hunting. So on the 3D course, it might be 50 yards. On the actual course itself, you, I think that the furthest he's ever stretched it was like 42 yards. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And he usually has these two big grizzlies facing each other. They're like this, you know, with their arms up. It's just, just so it's an impressive backdrop, you know, and um, of these two targets and you're shooting. You've seen the, the targets that pop up and then go down. Well, it's kind of similar to that in the fact that you have to execute the shot within a certain amount of time, but the, the targets don't go away. Um, I've even had a point to where I've come to full draw and the wind was this day, the wind was blowing terrible and I had to let down, but that's hunting, you know, and you, you know, to, because I knew that if I did, if I shot, I was going to miss, I let down, I let the wind gust died, drew back again, made the shot, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so that's, I, I, that's what I do. Well, they normally, th there are actually a couple of different areas that they do this, but unfortunately, um, COVID kind of put an old damper on that this year. So all we're doing is nationals, which will be at No Limits Archery in Denver. July, that is July 17th, 18th, and 19th, I think. So anybody can show up you if you if this is something you want to do get on a plane and get here this is a great community you can go online and register it's a great community my daughter actually shoots is going to shoot in national she's shot in it in the past so there's a kids you know it's it's a great competition good people and the cool thing about this versus like a train to hunt where you're on this big course is you have all these people that are cheering for you it's all happening right in front of them so there you have the adrenaline of people screaming, go, 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 you know, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I've been but, watching you do it. So I did the train to hunt a couple of years ago uh, down here in Tucson. Yeah, I've always mm -hmm. wanted to do it. I've never been able to do it because I was always on a baseball field. And finally, I'm like, right, I'm skipping the baseball tournament. I'm going to it and right. really enjoyed it. And I've wanted to do this for so long. Um, I work out at a big CrossFit. And they built a, it's a 15,000 square foot CrossFit facility. And so I, I kept telling my buddy, I'm like, we need to do an indoor one. Just one we put on, we got a bunch of people that want to shoot and let's do it. And I got a bunch of people that'll shoot. Let's do it indoors in Phoenix when it's really hot and just have a fun little competition. That's where the Fit Archer came from. Um, we do something similar called the Fit Archer competition, just indoors right. though. It's not outdoors, right. it's, but right. we do, we do CrossFit, like we do box work, no CrossFit skills type stuff. And and uh, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, it, what, you, what you, you notice is the camaraderie is in the hunting community is so great. Like when you say there's people cheering for you, of course you're in comp competition, you want to win, but you're still there to see the next guy succeed. You're still oh, there for to sure. see the next girl succeed yeah. and cheer everybody yeah. on. And man, the, the more we can uh, mesh our hunting community together, whether it's a, a gun hunter, muzzleloader hunter, bow hunter, youth hunter, crossbow hunter, traditional hunter, whatever it is, to keep our voice positive and strong is, is important. It's really, really important to do. Um, yeah. Let's finish with, because uh, I know yeah, you probably got to I got I to gotta head out. So You got to work. I get you to work. I'm just going to go tell yeah. some stories today. To, what, what hunts you got coming up? You got a couple quick so hunts. So I drew, I drew Colorado moose. Um, that's pretty exciting. My daughter yeah. drew Wyoming deer. I drew Wyoming deer and Wyoming elk, and I have New Mexico elk, um, and then the whitetail stuff. So I've I've got a lot of hunts um, this year. I'm trying to cut back on the amount of time I'm gone because my daughter has <laughs> as volleyball. You just say, as you just list off like six, seven hunts. So uh, there's a lot of hunts like Colorado elk and stuff like that. I might have to just say I'm not going. Yeah, that's but. It's my daughter sitting over here saying, I'll go for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she wants to take that moose hunt. Hey, take his moose yeah. hunt. 
no, she can't have my moose hunt. <laughs> That's going to be. Um, I'm really so excited gotta, to yeah, follow busy, you on busy that. year. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what you do on moose hunting because I know it's a tough tag to draw. I know you're a great hunter and you're going to find the right moose and, and you'll get it done and, and you're going to kill you're, you're going to kill a great moose. There's no question. I, I I'm excited. I'm excited to to for sure to 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 have that opportunity and in, in Colorado it's the holy grail. Yeah. Um, I've I've killed a mountain goat. I have not drawn sheep, but but moose is definitely probably the, I I don't know if it's the hardest, but it's definitely a harder hunt. So I'm excited. It's going to yeah. be it's going to be a great adventure and I'm going to we're going to capture it all and share it with the with the fans and and everybody yeah. who wants to follow along we'll try and it's where i'm moose hunting it's really bad cell phone signal so i probably won't be that much of an instagram type of live thing but we'll take some amazing imagery and then share that later on yeah so so tell the listeners where they can follow you outback outdoors where they can find you on social media yeah so uh outback outdoors on instagram and facebook trevin stoltzfus um common spelling (laughs) on instagram (laughs) and facebook um uh we've got our podcast the inspired wild podcast on itunes stitcher podbean those those places um so, so we've, we've got, got uh you can follow us there if if you need to get a hold of me instant message me probably the best and and or you can go on the website outbackoutdoors.com and and send me a message <clears throat> um, but uh, we're coming on uh this uh this next week will be our first uh show of the 2020 season for sportsman's channel uh we all our old shows are getting on Amazon Prime, you can go to Amazon Prime, search awesome. Outback Outdoors, and you can watch some of our older stuff. And that's, that's going to continue we're gonna, until we catch up. And and but we're on we start on Sportsman's Channel at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern. Um, that's 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and so it's probably 7 p.m. You're time. on yep. on Friday, um, uh, starting next week. Very and cool. And you can you can watch Outback Outdoors. So very cool. Well, Trevin, man, it's been great to. Uh We've only ch- we've never chatted through. I'm, I get to look at you here, so it's a, kind of like an introduction. Maybe one day we'll yeah. we'll, we'll officially spend some we'll time in camp meet. together. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. So we've we've hunted a lot of the same spot, got a lot of the same passions. And thanks for jumping on, man. Thanks for connecting. Well, th- and- yeah, and it's it's great. I'm I'm excited to be able to. Uh, I'll I'll take this podcast, turn around, put it on my channels. You do the same. And, and it's, it's a great way to cross promote. Um, I've known you for a long time, have a lot of, of, uh, respect for what you're doing and, uh, and vice versa, I think. So yeah, it works out yeah. well. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of weird, a lot of wild connections that we we met and, uh, end up connecting on a podcast too. Yeah. And, and for we sure. will one day we'll, we'll share a little bit of, uh, campfire one day and, and hunts together and no doubt. So, Sounds God great. bless you, man. Have a great rest of your day. And God have bless a good you. Fourth you. Good yes, fourth of yeah. July. Oh, you too, sir. And it's great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Trevin. Take care, buddy. All right, bye. bye.